you have to have this sort of culture of internal disruption and internal innovation where you try and figure out if somebody was going to kill my company, if they were going to take all my customers away, how would they do it? And then do it to yourself before somebody else does. That's Sam Mullikarjanan, an executive strategist at HubSpot. Without an official degree in marketing, Sam hustled his way into a job at HubSpot and has been part of the organization over the last seven years. Over that time, Sam has led a variety of teams, including the head of experimental marketing, head of e-commerce marketing, their internationalization efforts into South America, and head of HubSpot Labs. What Sam is talking about here, and what we dive into over the course of our interview with him, is the culture and mindset you need to create in order to continually re-examine how your business is operating in order to gain a competitive edge. This is Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. I'm Franco Variano, and today we're speaking with Sam Malikarjanan, an executive strategist at HubSpot. Sam also now teaches digital marketing at the Harvard Division of Continuing Education and the University of South Florida's Muma College of Business. Sam joins us to share his story, how he got into marketing, what it's been like leading a few of those teams at HubSpot, what some of the biggest challenges were, how he approaches solving problems, his mindset around growth and innovation, and much more. So let's get started. Hey Sam, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Very excited to have you on. But before we get into everything that you've been up to, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Where are you from and what are you currently up to at HubSpot? I am the executive strategist at HubSpot. So uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about our strategy and, and the market and with a specific mandate of figuring out if somebody's going to kill HubSpot, let's figure that out beforehand and do it to ourselves. So like, if there's a better way to deliver the value that HubSpot does, we would rather figure it out first and do it to ourselves than wait for somebody else to do it to us. We don't want to get Ubered or Amazon. So that's my role now. Uh, I've been at HubSpot a little over seven years. I am originally from Florida, but I moved up to Boston uh, for about five years to work at HubSpot. But then, uh, you know, I, I don't know how you all do it up there. I was there one year, we had 110 inches of snow. And my wife looks at me and, she, and she's also from Florida. And she's like, yeah, we're moving back to, to Tampa. So now we're back here. <laughs> no kidding. I wonder about that all the time myself. So I'm sure we'll dive into all those years at HubSpot, but take me back a little bit before all of that. Where did your passion for marketing and eventually tech startups really come from? So that's a weird story, actually. So I had an AM FM talk radio show about scotch and cigars in the greater Tampa area and sort of along the Gulf Coast, Louisiana uh, sort of area as well. And uh, And the cigar industry is not exactly renowned for its advanced innovation and like culture of technology. And so I had a bunch of folks who were coming to me when I had the radio show being like, hey, you know how the internet works, right? Like, can you help us with this? It's it's obviously something that's important. And so I started uh, I started doing some consulting and building websites for them, just basic WordPress sites or even just, you know, hard coding HTML sites for them. Uh, and then they, they started saying like, okay, we built websites. How do we actually make money off of the websites. That's actually how I found HubSpot was I was Googling like how to do e-commerce online and how to use Twitter for marketing. And all of that content brought me to HubSpot. And I ended up using the HubSpot content so often 
I eventually decided I want to just take a shot at working here. But ironically, even though I, I taught at Harvard and, and, and USF uh, here in Tampa, I don't actually have a bachelor's degree myself, which is a prerequisite for working at HubSpot. Uh, so what I did was I created a, a website called HireMeHubspot.com that was like a landing page on register for the webinar, the free webinar on why you should hire me. And then I ran ads targeting people who worked at HubSpot to get them to register for the free webinar on why they should hire me. And that's, that's how I ended up here. That's how I got started. That's amazing. What a cool story. And I'm sure tons of people already know what HubSpot's all about, but can you tell us more about, you know, what it was all about when you joined and what attracted you to really wanting to be part of the team there? So at the time, HubSpot only did marketing software, the all-in-one marketing platform that you needed. So it's got your, your website, your social media, your analytics, your email marketing, all of that stuff is wrapped up in one package so that an individual marketer or a small team of marketers can have the same power as a very large team with dedicated technical support. Uh, since then, we've obviously, we've expanded to doing the same thing to the sales industry. We've made that easy. Uh, and now we're expanding into the, the customer success and service industry, hoping to make that way less miserable than it is for, for people right now. And, make companies be more successful at it. But at the time they were they were just a marketing company and that was my mentality behind that particular campaign was if I'm going to join the marketing team instead of just sending my resume which was pretty irrelevant to them anyways, you know, AMFM talk radio show host about scotch and cigars isn't a strong appeal for the marketing tech space. You know, I figured out I would show them that I actually did know what I was doing. And the weird bit by the way is the only reason I did that is because I was so woefully underqualified at the time. The irony being, like, if I had actually been qualified, I probably would have just sent a resume and probably would have gotten rejected because HubSpot rejects most people. But when you know you're going to fail, it actually really opens up a lot of uh, flexibility for innovation because it gives you sort of the, the freedom to, to try something new and to expand beyond sort of what you think you're supposed to do. So because I knew if I did what I was supposed to do that, it, that I would fail... I had the, uh, the freedom to try something new and interesting, and it worked. The best campaign I've ever run. It took me three hours and 26 minutes to get a call from the recruiter from when I pushed the ads live. Unreal. And I really love that point about you know being willing to be creative when you think you might fail and have nothing else to lose. That was really well said. Uh, well, it's one of the reasons startups are so successful in general, right? Is because you know if you do what everyone else does, you get what everyone else gets. And large companies... They have all this inertia behind them, and it's really hard to change. Uh, and they're pretty sure that if they just keep doing what they've been doing, that they'll be successful because they have a history of that. Uh, whereas you go into a startup and they're like, we've never succeeded at anything, right? This is a new model, a new team, maybe a new customer base, a totally new invention, uh, maybe. And so they don't have any of that baggage. Uh, and they can just say, instead of what's the right way to do this, they can say, what's the best way to do this, or at least what's a better way. Yeah, definitely. And so over the years of being at HubSpot, you've been able to lead several teams, first as the head of experimental marketing, then as head of e-commerce marketing, and finally as head of growth for HubSpot Labs. And today you're an executive strategist, of course. So at a very high level, what was that mindset that you took with you into all of these different roles? So an interesting thing our CEO does, by the way, is he actually, uh, and our, our people operations team, we've got a great, great woman that, that runs that team, uh, Katie Burke. They actually track and solve for the number of times somebody moves within a company. So there are some people who are in a role they love. And they want to stay in that role forever. And we have some people who have done the same role at HubSpot for eight years, 10 years, whatever, and they're totally happy. But then there are other people who like to try new things. And historically, unless you've been able to get promoted within sort of your organization, uh, most companies don't give you that freedom. And so you end up going to a different company if you want to try a new role or, or try something experimental. So uh, HubSpot has actually, the reason I'm still here, seven years in the startup world is actually an eternity by most people's standards, uh, is because they've always given me the freedom to like try new things. So I started off 
as a what we call a large consultant, which didn't have anything to do with the effect of all the free pizza <laughs> on me. It was just our large customers who somebody had decided at some point to give unlimited consulting forever. Wow, that's a pretty nice perk. <laughs> as the reason they should buy large. Uh, so I started off on that team talking with customers who had been at this for quite a few years and saying, like, how do you keep delivering value? How do you keep coming up with something new? Uh, so we did some interesting things like launching the first ever marketing campaign on Pinterest with a mortgage company based out of Michigan, that sort of thing. And then I moved over to experimental marketing. And some of that is tactical. Yeah, like abandonment modals back in the day. Those are real common now, but like testing those back in the day, is that going to work? But our primary job was actually testing new buyer personas. So can we sell to franchises or nonprofits or e-commerce companies, right? Uh, can we sell to them and then can we make them successful? Will they actually stick around and be healthy, long-term, profitable HubSpot customers? So that was the role of the experimental marketing team was to test whether or not we could expand into new markets. It's in a, in a profitable and efficient way and deliver value for those folks. The most successful one for me was the e-com team. And so I actually shifted from managing all of the experiments to just managing the e-commerce marketing team. And then I actually, managing our marketing expansion to Latin America was also something we didn't understand. So it was, it was a fun project to work on. Uh, and then from there, I moved into HubSpot Labs. That's really cool. And so focusing on international expansion for a quick minute, what was it like for you and HubSpot? What were some of the lessons or insights that you gained? So I, I have an interview question I asked based almost entirely off of this experience, because again, it comes down to what do you do when you don't know the right answer, right? It's not that my boss knows the right answer and he's just not telling me for some reason because he wants me to figure it out on my own and grow that way. He, he doesn't know the right answer. My job is to figure out the answer to a question that no one has ever asked at the company. And so I ask an interview question that asks like, we should use a country code top-level domain because the folks in Germany say that's really important. You know, people in Germany aren't going to buy HubSpot unless you have HubSpot.de. Uh, and we're expanding into Latin America. And the goal is I want to see whether or not they identify the fact that I've made an assumption, which is that the same thing that worked in Germany is going to translate to Latin America, and then that they question that assumption and that they design a test to validate that assumption. So... For example, we ended up running a survey of people in Latin America asking, do you care whether or not it has .com.br for Brazil or you know the Argentina extension or whatever? Turns out they don't. As long as it's in their, in their language, they, they generally don't care as much as, say, folks in Germany care about it being HubSpot.de. So a lot of it was identifying and breaking apart a lot of the assumptions that we had about what go-to-market meant and then the value that we create, right? So all of our marketing, inbound marketing, the, the concept of creating marketing experiences that attract people rather than pushing marketing experiences on people through interruption, cold calling, that sort of stuff. Does that position resonate in other markets? Like, for example, Japan, where we're saying the Seth Godin sort of, you know, you are the platform and you have all this power as a marketer to do all this stuff. That's actually the wrong positioning when you're expanding into, for example, Japan, where it's a lot more about like, what can I do for the company? What can I do to help the firm grow, to help my employer who's done so much for me? And really getting down into, usually it's only product people, inventors, that think about the job to be done framework. So the job to be done, Henry Ford has the most famous quote on this, where he said, if I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have set a faster horse. Obviously, he didn't found the Henry Ford horse breeding company. He found the Henry Ford motor company. Why is it that people are consuming your marketing? Why is it that people are consuming your software and thinking about that as a product in and of itself? And then making sure that what you're marketing is saying and what your sales process is positioning to them is something that actually matters to them. Because you can sell the same product to different people from a different perspective of value. Uh, and if you try to sell me this nice, beautiful Yeti mic that I'm speaking into right now, it's going to be a completely different process than if they try and sell it to you. Right? If they try and sell it to you, they're going to talk about 
I don't know much about sound. You you probably do. They're going to talk about you know the interference and the wavelengths and all the technology stuff about it. Uh, but for me, what I care about is that I sat down about seven minutes before this interview started and I'm able to plug it in and it just works, right? The little light pops on and it just works. I need it to be simple and for you to be able to hear me clearly. So really drilling in on what matters to people and then making sure that our marketing reflected that uh, in the, fee- the way that it made people feel uh, was the big thing that made us successful in all of our global markets, but especially in, in LATAM where it wasn't just the exact same cultural mindset that we had refined here in North America. Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned, there's still not a ton of insights around all this. So going through it is always a bit experimental depending on the business or, you know, industry. Yeah. And there's not, you know, there's not great research on a lot of this stuff at the startup level because a startup going global is a silly newish phenomenon, right? So it's 10, 20, you know, ish years, 25 years, maybe that companies have been able to go from we literally don't exist as a company to we are HubSpot is like 2,100 people in six or eight offices or something operating in like seven different languages all around the world in just 10 years. That's a pretty new phenomenon. And so there's not really like a, I can't just go read a book on it. And I, I, I tried, don't get me wrong. I bought every book on Amazon on like how to do Latin American marketing. And they were all like, you know, it's very important to sit down with them and, and shake their hand and, and everything else like that. I'm like, I can't do that. I'm a SaaS company, right? I have to find some way to take those same things and extrapolate them into the new business model. Like SaaS as a model, uh, software as a service, you know, didn't exist until really like Salesforce started pioneering it uh, maybe, you know, less than 20 years ago. So yeah, there's not really been a great playbook to follow. And that's what makes the job interesting and exciting, right? That's why we do what we do is because we get to figure out new problems. and, And sometimes, as I said earlier, maybe not doing things the right way, but doing things a better way. Absolutely. And so speaking about not having a playbook and having to find all the answers to questions that people aren't even asking yet, let's dive into HubSpot Labs. So what was that role really like and what were some of the biggest challenges you faced? So HubSpot Labs was was interesting, right? So again, that comes back to this idea that the average lifespan of a company on the Fortune 500 has gone from 75 years down to just about 15 years. And the research out of Yale and some of the stuff out of Deloitte expects that to go down to about five years. So the turnover rate in market leaders is accelerating at a very rapid pace. And it's not because the world doesn't have money. There's $2 trillion in free cash sitting on American balance sheets, business balance sheets alone. So the old idea of wait until somebody else does something interesting and then just buy them doesn't necessarily work. The taxi companies could have bought Uber when it was small if they had realized, wow, this Uber company is really solving for a piece of customer value that's important to customers in a better way than we've been doing it. But by the time they realized that Uber, the company, had a greater market cap than the entire American taxi industry combined. So you can't wait for this idea of wait till somebody does something cool and then buy them. You have to have this sort of culture of internal disruption and internal innovation where you try and figure out if somebody was going to kill my company, if they were going to take all my customers away, how would they do it? And then do it to yourself before somebody else does. Yeah, that makes sense. So were there any specific scenarios or project examples that you could share where this was put into practice? The most notable example, right, was inbound.org, which is our community site. The idea there was, you know, a lot of HubSpot's marketing power is based off the ability to help people learn. Our blog is educational. Our webinars are educational. We generally don't talk about the HubSpot software. Uh, In fact, that used to be one of our biggest marketing problems. People didn't know we sold software because we spent so much time focusing on education. And communities are really good at educating people and creating these connections and introducing people to new jobs and careers and stuff like that. And we knew that if we didn't own that space, somebody else would. 
It might have been a competing software or it might have been somebody in an entirely different market segment or it might have been a startup on its own. But somebody was going to own that space. And it also gave us sort of like an extendable core against people who had really nice, big professional networks, you know, LinkedIn uh, as a sort of example. If LinkedIn like moved into the CRM space and they were the only place in the world that marketers went to learn information uh, or that they were the only business, like real professional network in the world, all the marketers were on that network, uh, they would have a really big advantage in moving into whatever space they wanted to. And so it was both like a proactive this will help us accelerate growth and what we call a moat play, which is it helps us own the mindshare in a piece of the space that if somebody took that away from us, that would be that'd be bad. That'd be bad for the company. Another big thing was, you know, HubSpot's expansion into sales tools. Part of that was absolutely selling sales software is very profitable. CRM software, sales enablement software, rep productivity software, people spend a lot of money on that. But the other part of that is there's this great non-linear force multiplier, right? So if somebody's using the same marketing software at their company with the VP of marketing and then the VP of sales is using the same software and they talk to each other and they work together beautifully, it actually allows both teams to do their work better. And if somebody was going to sell into the sales organization, it'll make it easier for them to sell into the marketing side of a business. And so we had that idea and we tested that idea. And it's true. If you sell to software to the sales side of the business, it's way easier to sell software to the marketing side of the business and vice versa. And that was sort of the thing. It's like, somebody's going to do that to us, right? Somebody's going to sell into the sales org and then use that to sell sideways into the marketing org. We have to invest in doing that to ourselves first. So those are two of the clearest examples. So now obviously we have inbound.org, which is the HubSpot community, which is becoming uh, the HubSpot growth hub. And then obviously like the HubSpot sales suite of tools, the very profitable industry for us, but also it's a, a unique sort of force multiplier because sales and marketing are so tightly aligned. If you are so narrowly focused on one space that you completely ignore the other, you can suffer from you know what they call sideways disruption, right? Somebody who wasn't a direct competitor can come eat all of your lunch anyways. Yeah, absolutely. So you've mentioned something really interesting a few times throughout the episode so far that I feel like startups don't take enough time to think about. And that's the concept of internal innovation and figuring out how competitors might be trying to put you out of business. So I'm really curious about the mindset or the process that you bring not only to these initiatives, but how do you apply that same methodology to smaller projects or challenges where you don't know the answer to the question you're trying to solve for? It's always regressed back into that jobs to be done philosophy. Everything that you do, everything I buy, everywhere I go, everything I eat, everything is serving some job in my life, right? I'm, I'm, I'm hiring a milkshake to do a job for me, you know, as Clay Christensen's specific example. And we spend a lot of time, a lot of time obsessing about that. And when we do what we jokingly call sort of end of the world planning, right? Like what would happen if people stopped using email? Uh, well, you know, we sell email software and a lot of our marketing is powered by email. That's a big way for us to acquire new customers. Uh, so if people stopped using email, that would be pretty, it wouldn't destroy us, but that'd be pretty damaging. So thinking about why do people use email? What's the job they're trying to do with email versus text messaging versus a phone call? And making sure that we are getting really good at defining what those values are. What, what is it? What's that process? And to an extent, we even use the, um, what we call the user story framework. So as an X, I want two Y so that I can Z. Uh, the so that I can Z part is really hard to figure out. Why is it, you know, as, as a podcast interviewer, I want to have a podcast that cancels noise so that I can Z. The so that I can Z is so I can save less time editing. I don't have to do that. I have a higher professional sounding uh, sounding podcast so that people respect me more and have a higher level of credibility, et cetera. And then once you define those, right, less editing, higher cr- credibility and trust, then if I'm Yeti, and I keep using Yeti as an example because I'm staring at their logo right now, you know, I can think about ways that I can better serve that specific job to be done. 
Uh, and then in terms of prioritization, it's how important is that to the customer, right? So the fact that it's kind of black and sleek looking, not super important to me. It might be a factor-ish and it might be a re really important to a very small number of customers. But the fact that it's easy to use is something that's probably really important to a fairly large number of customers. Once you have those definitions down and you can create a prioritization, how important is it to how large of the market segments? Then you can get really good at designing experiments to continually test, is there a better way to do this? And it's not a one and done thing, right? There's a bunch of different ways to make a, a microphone easy to use. But once you have that problem defined, then you can get really good at running a bunch of tests, a bunch of experimentation to really quickly see if there's a, a better way to do it before you launch like a nice, massive new product line or something like that. Yeah, I completely agree. And so on that note, what are you currently focused on for 2018? My main focus, and HubSpot's too, actually, is there's this huge disconnect between customer acquisition and the business. And I'm capitalizing the T and the B in the business. We acquire customers and then we sort of stop, right? So e-commerce e companies are the worst perpetrators of this. Like once somebody buys from you, you spam them three to five times a week with a coupon and you call that email marketing. But when you look at the really world-class companies, I love using Starbucks as this example, right? So Starbucks has an average order value of about six bucks. And most companies would look at their sales and marketing teams and saying, okay, cool, like we need you to sell this $6 coffee sandwich combo. So we're going to have a sales rep and we're going to pay the sales rep, you know, 80 cents commission every time they do that. And the marketing team can spend another 80 cents per customer that we acquire to do that. Starbucks has an average lifetime value of more than $15,000. I've rerun the math for HubSpotters, by the way. It's more than $30,000. We drink a lot of coffee and eat a lot of sandwiches, do interviews there, management offsites, that sort of thing. So if you're a Starbucks marketer, you're not trying to spend $2 to sell a $6 coffee sandwich combo. You're spending like $2,000 or $3,000 or $5,000 to acquire and retain a, for example, $15,000 customer. And so the customer success piece, the retention piece has really been lost. It's really not been an area of focus. Sales and marketing leaders generally argue against it, right? Because they look at any investment in customer support and customer success and service as less money for them in their budget. What they don't realize, though, is that if the customer value goes up, if the customer retention and monetization, the success, the support, if all of that goes up and the customer value increases, everybody on the sales and marketing team gets a raise. You can hire better people at higher salaries. You can have bigger budgets. You know, HubSpot has 200 people on our marketing team. I think like 30 or 40 of which are just content people, like bloggers and eBooks and, and those sorts of folks, designers, et cetera. The reason we can do that is not just because we're good at marketing, because we're ridiculously good at customer retention. And so that's the, uh, the piece that we're going to be expanding into this year. Uh, that's my main focus is that is helping companies with that. So like if you're really good at keeping customers, you can spend more to get customers. And the world of getting customers, we've been focused on for the last 20 or so years. Lots and lots of companies like HubSpot, uh, all kinds of companies have worked on building software and solutions to help you get more customers. People have got really efficient at it, right? Like we have conversion rate optimization, marketing automation, personalization, analytics, all this beautiful stuff that's made these great experiences to have, help people become customers. But the only way to do more of that and to get better at that and to be competitive in sales and marketing is if we're really good at keeping customers. If that value goes up, then we can afford to spend more money to acquire customers. So that's my obsession right now is that bit that sales and marketing leaders need to understand that if you want to raise, if you want bigger budgets, if you want 
more technology, bigger ad spend, whatever it is, higher commissions, what you should probably be doing, assuming you're not terrible at your job and you just need to add marketing automation or something relatively straightforward at this point, what you should probably be doing is lobbying for increased investment in customer retention and customer success. How can our team, the sales and marketing team, help keep customers around longer and make them more valuable? Because when that happens, your team gets a raise. That's very cool. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you guys are going to put out around this because HubSpot always does a great job with content. So I'm really looking forward to seeing it. We're working on it. Um, it's something we've always known it was important because in, in SaaS, so software as a service or any recurring revenue like subscription model, it's native to us, right? We all inherently understand that if somebody cancels their subscription, that's a bunch of cash that's gone out the door that we don't get. And that if you're really good at keeping those customers, you can actually lose money to acquire a customer. So companies like HubSpot spend way more money to get somebody to buy HubSpot with our, between our sales and marketing team than they pay us in their first month or their second month or many months after that. And then eventually we break even on that and it's all profit if we're really good at keeping them around. But with the exception of subscription models, nobody else is really obsessed about this. And the first, the first time anybody told me about it, it was a guy named Matt Lausen, who was an entrepreneur in Boston. And he's the founder of a company called Gemvara, which is a jewelry uh, startup based out of Boston. And he sort of made a casual offhand remark that, because I asked him, what's the future of e-com? Because I was running the e-com team at the time. And he's like, well, I think e-com companies are going to have to think more like SaaS companies. And that's all he said. And then he like moved on to his, the other questions from the audience. Like totally blew my mind. Because even though I had done e-commerce marketing in the past, and I'd run the e-com team at HubSpot, none of our positioning had been around understanding and teaching e-com or retail or services companies, any anybody besides subscription, this model, this understanding that if you have a lot of confidence that they're going to come back, like Starbucks, right? It's addictive and they're beautiful chairs and great Wi-Fi and stuff like that. You can actually lose money to acquire customers. And that's what opens up the doors to real innovation in sales and marketing. So in case you can't tell, super passionate, very excited about this topic. I think that's really the missing key in growth is the obsession around customer retention, customer success, customer service. Yeah, absolutely. It's a compelling topic. And like I said, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you guys put out on it. So over the course of your career, you've done a ton of amazing things. But what have been some of the most pivotal moments for you? I'll tell you one pivotal moment was J.D. Sherman, who's, who's one of our C-level execs, when he told me that that was a new economic concept. So he's been around uh, this business much longer than I have. And it hadn't occurred to me that this idea of like SaaS economics, uh, customer retention and its relation to acquisition costs is like a new thing, even for, even for Wall Street, right? So you look at the criticism that Amazon gets in their, in their uh, earnings calls and stuff like that, because they make something like $300,000 a minute, every minute of every day, but they don't make a ton of profit. And people look at that as like, Oh, Amazon's an unsustainable business. Amazon is not an unsustainable business. Amazon is a, is on a on a unit economics level for their individual customers, for their individual business units. They're not doing unprofitable stuff. They're just able to invest in continuous growth as well as ex exploring new markets like their Amazon Web Services and some of their other stuff. They're able to continue investing in that and continue growing because they have a really good understanding of how profitable their models are. And so it's really easy to go to the stock market or private investors or whoever and say, like, listen, we've got this big, beautiful, profitable model. If you give us a bunch more money, we can make it even bigger and even more profitable. I hadn't thought about that. Like even, even today, the Wall Street analysts, a lot of them don't understand that. Competitors don't understand that. Individual companies, companies don't get that. We're, we're pretty good about this, but I worry about HubSpot falling victim to what I call Sprocket Syndrome. Sprocket's our logo, the HubSpot logo. And if you've ever heard of Beltway Syndrome, it's the idea that everybody in Washington, D.C. 
thinks that everybody else in the world sees the world the way people in Washington, D.C. do. The Beltway is a, a road that runs around Washington, D.C. And I that was really pivotal for me. It was understanding that because I know something or it's relevant to me, doesn't necessarily mean that the rest of the market uh, knows that. The other really pivotal moment for me was when I first sort of shifted into a management role from a career perspective, right? Like management is hard. Managing people is hard. And when, you, when you're an individual contributor, I, I've, had, I've been blessed at HubSpot with always having bosses. I was never sitting there thinking that I could do their job better than them, that they just got it because they were somebody's cousin or something. All of my bosses have legitimately been smarter than me, which is a luxury not a lot of people have. But still, like management doesn't get a ton of respect. It is absolutely a discipline and a skill set that you have to practice because it is in and of itself a service, especially in an industry where the employees are valuable and they're really competitive. Uh, you know, anybody working at HubSpot could go down the street and work at Facebook too. And I have to create a, a reason for them to stay at HubSpot instead of going to Facebook. And that that's a discipline set that I didn't have. And it was frustrating for me to not be able to do marketing anymore, right? Like not be able to deploy the experiments and do the growth campaigns and everything else like that. And really admit to myself that, uh, you know, management itself was a discipline that I had to create and refine in myself because marketing wasn't my job anymore. Leading and managing marketers was my job. So those two things. And the first one I would say really comes down to developing a sense of empathy and realizing that not everybody else in the world feels the way you do or sees the, the market the way that you do or sees their business the way that you do. And then the second bit of understanding that as you grow in your career, the nature of your job changes and you have to let that go and, and commit to a new level of mastery. Those are probably the two most pivotal moments uh, in my time at HubSpot. Yeah, very well said. Those are huge insights. And so along those lines, are there any great resources that you've come across or that you keep coming back to and you'd recommend to others on those topics? So empathy is, is hard to train. And the thing about empathy, so that, that same thing about, you know, avoiding sprocket syndrome is also, for example, what makes great sales reps. Being able to look out through the customer's eyes and see the problem the way they see the problem is what separates sales reps from back in the day when I used to sell cell phones in the mall, like harassing people in the mall, trying to sell them cell phones. I used to train those people and do that as a job. Uh, that's a terrible way to do sales as opposed to the modern way, which is sort of empathy based. There are sort of empathy exercises that you can do. My wife and I like sort of have a joking, uh, jokingly have a process of whenever somebody cuts us off in traffic or, or really does anything that pisses us off, one of us gets angry. The other one will start uh, spinning fiction stories about things that would make that okay, right? So somebody cuts you off in traffic. It's like, you know, you don't know, like maybe they're rushing their wife to the hospital because she's pregnant or something like that, right? So we actually do like an empathy training game, um, which is first of all, good for our relationship, but also just good for your professional a sense of empathy, but that's hard. That's hard to develop. And that's something you have to, you have to work on. From the management perspective, there are some frameworks that I use. Huge fan of the situational leadership framework. We don't have time on this interview to go into it, but I encourage people to like search, search out the situational leadership framework. Uh, the thing that I love about that is the understanding that um, just because somebody is senior and experienced doesn't mean they're senior and experienced in what you're asking them to do right then. So for example, I'm deploying the new uh, digital marketing course for the University of South Florida here in Tampa. And I have very deep expertise in marketing. All the course material, I would argue that this is probably one of, I'm biased, probably one of the best courses in digital marketing that's been put out there. But I have no idea how to do all the like pedagogy, like designing uh, an experience that actually helps people learn. Uh, I think that's what the folks at USF and at Harvard have done really well is pairing me with professional teachers to help me get through some of that bit. Because professional teachers have no recent marketing experience, even if they teach marketing, but they are excellent teachers. And they, they sort of acknowledge and understand 
that you have to, just because I'm a good digital marketer, growth person, product person, salesperson, doesn't necessarily mean I know how to deploy an online course. So I definitely encourage people to look into situational leadership. And then the other one that I love is the sort of uh, the, the service leader mentality of understanding that, yes, there are times where command is your job. Uh, but for the most part, if you're doing your job right, uh, it's recruit, train, retain, and help them grow. That's not just fluffy, like hug your neighbor kind of platitudes. That really is how you create and, and deliver an effective team. Like those people are going to do their jobs, but they have things, they have problems that only you can solve. Yes, they need you to point them in directions and align all the vectors and sometimes tell them like what they should be focusing on, but it's more working around them than it is pushing behind them and making sure that they have the clear path and, and everything else they need. So the service leader sort of framework and mentality is something that didn't really come naturally to me because you know I had previous experience in Army ROTC and stuff like that where it was more command oriented. And uh, that's something that, that I had to learn. I had to master. Wow, those both sound super interesting. I'll have to dive into that myself. Let me know if there's any specific links on topics or blogs that we should include. I'm pretty sure situational leadership is like a patented and trademarked uh, framework that some company sells. HubSpot does a lot of internal development. So I actually learned both of those frameworks because we bought whatever that course is and our internal training team brought in people to teach that stuff to us. And that that like dedication to employee development, I think is been key to my success and also by extension HubSpot's success. A, a commitment to employee development, I think falls into both of those categories. And I'm sure there's somebody that all of the listeners can pay to help them <laughs> work with that or they can uh, they can uh, develop some of those frameworks on their own. Yeah, for sure. So we've covered a ton of ground over the course of the episode. Do you have any last thoughts or words of advice to leave us with? I, you know, I, I have a, a, a story that I like to tell. When, when the HubSpot team first grew from like 10 to when we were like, Oh, maybe 50 or so. Uh, we finally had somebody, we had a, a relatively new person come in who took over email. And uh, I try to do, you know, as much sort of paid forward mentorship as I can, uh, because that's how I get to where I am. And so I was asking her, I'm like, you know, what have you tested in this email? And she sent me subject line and some of the other stuff. And I asked her, I'm like, why do you use the one column format? Like, have you tested that? And she's like, well, that that was the way it was when I got here. And she had sort of assumed that we were using the one column format because somebody had done some really rigorous testing and experimentation. HubSpot's got smart people. Uh, and that, that, that one column format was the best email that, that we could send. And I happened to be around when we selected that. Uh, that was just the first option in the software. We had a bunch of other stuff that we needed to test, a bunch of other projects that we had to work on, et cetera. We weren't using the one column format just because we had done this advanced detailed testing. That decision had been made because a decision had to be made, and that was the first one in the software. And this happens a lot. What your job is, what the scope of your role is, who you're supposed to work with, what your goals are supposed to be, how you're supposed to do it. All of that stuff is a decision that somebody made at some point because at the right time, it was the best decision. Maybe they did think about it in great depth and within the context of the time, that was the right decision. Maybe they just made a decision because a decision had to be made. But challenge all of those, bringing it back to the role of sales and marketing teams in customer success and retention. Companies aren't designed that way. That's quote unquote, not your job. Right When you're on the marketing team to reach over to the customer success team and say, hey, is there anything we can do? Can we help you guys with design resources? Can we help you with email? Whatever. That's not our job. But that decision was made because a decision had to be made when designing the organization. That doesn't mean it's the best decision. So that's my number one takeaway for everybody, whether it's your career or your life, or if you're the CEO of a company, be challenging all of those decisions and don't assume that the way something is now is the right way. There, It's very possible. In fact, probable given how fast, fast the world is changing, that there may be a better way. Yeah, what an awesome story and a great point that it drives home. Sam, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It was amazing to have you on. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. 
you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear about it and have you share it with friends. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at hack to start or drop us an email, pay at hack to start.com. You can also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes by finding hack to start on Apple podcasts, breaker audio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.